Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, we are, we are in verse 18 through 25. As you know, we've been going systematically through the book of Colossians. Actually, we've been going from the very beginning. Uh, and we, this is as far as we've gotten so far in the previous years through all the, all the uh, epistles that Paul wrote from prison. Colossians is another one. It's in the city of Colossians. As a matter of fact, it's to three cities, but uh, it's only addressed to Colossians. It's also to uh, uh, the other cities that are that they're in that area. That there's, uh, and what Paul has done is he, he gets as much information out to one place that can go ahead and hand it out to the other cities that are around. And the, the, the good thing about Colossus is that what we've been learning the last few months as we've been studying Colossians chapters 1 through 3 is that the first three chapters are all doctrine and teaching and that what Paul's trying to establish first and foremost, these are some of the things that you must know. And then when we went on to chapters 3 and 4, the next two chapters, uh, they're gonna, we're going to start to find out this is how you should behave. And uh, as we've been looking at this, what you know is what you do. Or doctrine always determines your behavior. Uh, what you believe is going to show you what you should be doing. And everything that we do, we do it because there's a belief system in our life. We believe that, that this is how it should be done. And so Paul wanted to establish that in the city of Colossae and the surrounding cities because there was this infiltration of outside sources. There was an infiltration of this philosophy and, and traditions that were coming in. And, and so what Paul first and foremost wants to do is he says, you know, I, I want, first of, all, first of all, in chapter 1, he says, you know, in verse 3, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. There was a faith that was being produced as in producing action and acts, and Paul is saying, I, I believe. It's, it's great that every time that I remember you because I know that your faith is always being tested. And not only that, you love each other. You encourage one another. And then in verse 9 of chapter 1, he says, And so from the day we heard, you had not, we had not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And as we went through this portion of Scripture, we've come to find out that what Paul is referring to here is he's talking about the wisdom that has been coming to them from outside sources. There was a, a thought back then called Gnosticism, that everything is, uh, everything that you can see, that you can touch, that you can, that you can feel, all that was evil, including the body. And the only thing that mattered was your intellect or your, your wisdom or your knowledge. And the more knowledge or wisdom that you acquired, the spiritual, the more spiritual you would be. And Paul was saying, I want you guys to, yes, be spiritual, but you got to understand that everything matters. God created everything. And this Gnostic thinking, this thinking that was philosophy that was out there, they didn't believe that thing, that God created everything. As a matter of fact, they didn't believe that Jesus was an actual man. Because <clears throat> we see in verse 15, Paul is addressing that issue. He says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, that is everything he might be preeminent, that in everything he might be preeminent. 
For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. We start to, re- we start to see that Paul is already dealing with this philosophy, these things that are out there. They, they were believing that Christ was not a human being. He was divine. As a matter of fact, he was not even divine in the sense that God had created him that way, but he was more of an emanation or a power or something that came out from heaven. And these, these powers or these pulses of energy or this emanation that God was sending out, some created the world, some created the, uh, other things, and some created demons. And one of these emanations that came out, or these powers or these pulses of energy that came out from God, was Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, their thinking was this, that they believed that Christ could not have been human, because if he was human, then he would be corrupt, because the matter, everything that you can see, was evil. And so they, they would not believe that Christ was human. But Paul goes on to say not only was he human, he was God himself. He, he's the one that created all things. These emanations didn't create everything, but Jesus Christ did. He created these things. He is the image of the invisible God, for by him all things were created. And so as we start to realize that the people in Colossus were getting philosophy from all sorts of different places, and how it was infiltrating their thought and their thinking process, Paul goes on to say in verse 21, he says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled with his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Remember those words, holy and blameless, because it ties into what we'll be talking about here today. And so Jesus Christ, what he has done, he's settled the sin that has separated you from God. You don't have to work at it. You don't have to follow these philosophies. You don't have to follow these traditions and everything else that a lot of these uh, people were bringing in. If you go over to verse 6 of chapter 2, he says, Therefore, as you receive Christ, Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And then he goes on to say, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental truths of the world, and not according to Christ. There was all this philosophy, there was all these traditions, there were all these things that were coming in, and so people believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross. Yes, we believe that. However, you also have to have a higher learning. You have to have this idea that there's more to just Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ plus traditions. Jesus Christ plus the Sabbath. Jesus Christ plus circumcision. In our days, we would say Jesus Christ plus baptism, or Jesus Christ plus the Lord's Supper, or Jesus Christ and works. And and it would and it's, it's starting to come a little bit clear when we start to realize that there's a lot of times that we believe or think or we feel like there needs to be something more. There needs to be something more. And it doesn't seem to be going in, in the direction that we, we wanted to, to go because we believe that, that God himself created us and made us exactly the, you know, the way we are, but how can that just be enough? How can that be enough? Jesus Christ died on the cross and that's it? Jesus Christ died on the cross and that's it. You pay for your sin. And us trying to do more works, you would say, us trying to do more it is just nullifying the cross. It's, it's trying to say that what Jesus Christ did on the cross 
was a waste of time because now I've got to try to make up for everything else. Some of the things that they were teaching there in verse 16, therefore do not let let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. There was this influence of tradition, of, of Jewish tradition that was coming in, and, and they were trying to tell them, yes, you're saved, yes, Jesus Christ died on the cross, but there's other things that you have to do. There's the new moon, the festivals, and all these things that are taking place. And then in verse 18, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. In other words, of self-mutilating the body or self-depriving or depriving the body in a sense to where you're fasting or doing these other things to show that you truly are serious about what, what uh, serious about knowing God. And there was this, this act of, of trying to uh, sacrifice themselves. And you'll see some of this in some places where they actually crucify themselves. People are walking around with whips and whipping themselves. And, and Paul says, don't let that, you don't need that. You don't need this asceticism. You don't need this, uh, uh, all these other things. Don't let them disqualify you. And also of the worship of angels. There was this thought that, you know, because these emanations or these pulses that were coming out, that God came out and showed us that, that angels should be worshipped. And we, we went through this very in-depth at that time, but very briefly, angels are ministering agents from God. They're not to be worshipped. As a matter of fact, angels, every time they came to the earth, they always did what God had called them to do. Angels are not something that we are to worship. We recognize them, uh, but as a matter of fact, we, one of the verses that we read was in Hebrews where it says that you ought to be show hospitality. Show hospitality to all folks, all people, because you do not know if you are being entertain, or entertaining an angel. You do not know. And, and the point that uh, the writer of the Hebrews is trying to say, we don't know. God sends out these angels, and we don't know who they are. We don't know how often they come across. Yet today, in today's world, we have this fascination with angels and demons and all kinds of other things. And, and it's, it's gone to this, this point where people are even making movies and proclaiming that they've seen angels and talked to angels. And, but that's not what their purpose is. Anything that takes away from the cross, anything, anything that takes away from Jesus Christ, is what Paul is trying to get across, Jesus Christ is sufficient. Amen? He's sufficient. That's all that needs to, that's all we need to know, that He is sufficient. He is taking care of all things. There's nothing more that needs to be added. And let me just conclude with this and this part, uh, that no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by His central mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together, Though through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Why do we submit to these things? If, if, those are the, if Jesus Christ has already taken care of it, and He's already done what needs to be done at the cross, why are we trying to do even more so? Why are we holding on to these traditions and, and thoughts and ideas? A big part of it is because of what we've grown up with. A lot of tradition, things that people say, uh, you know, tell us. I remember one of the things that 
they used to tell me, he says, you know what happens to all liars? They go to hell. I go, really? So I, you know, I, I knew I was going to hell because I was a big liar. <laughs> and, and to some extent, I, I, I really believe that God didn't even know me anymore or cared for me. But we, we hear these things as we grow up or, or as we hear from other leaders or pastors. But when you see the Word of God, what Paul is dealing with, and, and it doesn't take much to start to realize, you know, Paul is already dealing with this back then in the first century, but it's filtered into our present day, as we'll see here in just a bit. And so when Paul is dealing with doctrine and teaching, look, here's what you need to know. Now, here's how you need to proceed in chapter 3. If then, because now he's, this is one of those, therefore, in verse 1, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. What we've been going through the last few weeks are seeking those things that are above. On discipleship is what it's called. Seeking those things because our mind is what is supposed to be submitted to Christ. We are to take off the old man and put on the new man. And we went over what the old man looks like in the next few verses. In uh, verse 5, he says, put to, so put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetedness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And then in verse 7, in these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. And then he goes on to another list, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene, obscene talk from your mouth. The first list, you know, we can probably stop this. Well, you know, I'm okay with that. But I don't participate in sexual morality, impurity, or passions, or, or evil desires. I don't do those kind of things. Idolatry? No, I'm good. And then we go on, and Paul says in verse 8, But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. We went over that list. We looked at them from the Greek standing and what they meant and how they applied to us. But you know, to be honest with you, every one of us have fallen prey to one of these sins. And the, the one thing that's important to understand, the reason we sing that God is holy because we want to recognize His holiness. We sing holy, holy, holy. We sing holy is the Lamb who was slain. Because holiness is set apart. In, in, the, in the Old Testament, holiness needs to be set apart. God wants you to be holy, set apart from this world. He wants you to be different than the world. You know, on top of that, you know, for God, not for us, for God, it means pure. It means without blemish. It means, it means perfect. We're not perfect and we're not pure, but we're perfectly pure because Christ has covered us with His righteousness. He has put on us, which they call imputation, that He imputed on us or He put on us His righteousness, and He took from us our sin. And He's made us right in, stand, in standing with God. And every time that I sin, and every time that I say something, or I think something, or I do something, it offends God, and it should trouble you as well. One of the things that we've been going through in these last few weeks is that it seems like there's believers that say, oh, it's no big deal. God knows that I'm a work in progress. It's no big deal. You know, I mean, you know, it was just a little lie. It wasn't that bad. I mean, it was to the government anyway, so hey, who cares? You know, and, and a lot of times we just kind of minimize our sin. We, and we minimize it, and our society has taught us how to minimize it by laughing at it, by accepting it, by participating in it. Everybody else is doing it. But God has called us to be separate, holy, different. 
And the hard part is, is that this flesh desires the world. My flesh wants what the world has to offer. This is why Paul tells us to crucify the flesh. We've got to crucify ourselves. We have to put off. And this word, as we looked at it, this word is more of a taking off, like if you're taking off your old clothes and putting on new clothes. As a matter of fact, in the first century, the Christians were baptized. They would symbolically remove their old clothing and put on some new clothing as they were baptized and they were brought up. And that tradition is held on for many people in many churches where they, they put on a white robe to help you baptize, symbolically stating that you have taken off the old man and you put on the new man. And it's more than symbolism. It needs to be a reality in our life. And the challenge there, beloved, is, is having and being able to live that life because our life is inundated with sin. Everywhere we go, it's just coming at us. I mean, we, we, don't, even, we don't even recognize it anymore because it is so just there. And we agree with it and we, we continue on in it. So Paul says, put to death. And then he says in chapter, verse 12, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. He says, this is, you take this off, and this is what you need to put on. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all, these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And the peace of Christ rule in your heart, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful that the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing hymns and, and singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs and thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Very quick recap of what we've been going through in the last few months. And the bottom line is this, this is what we need to put on. This is how we are to act. This is how we are to do. And, and as he's putting on these pieces of clothing, this is the undergarment before you put on your spiritual armor. A lot of us want to put on the spiritual armor. We want to go to, to war. We want to get the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness. We want to get the sword, which is the, the word of God. And we want to get the belt of truth. And we want to get battled up. And we want to fight. But before we can even go there, this is the undergarment. This is what we put on. And he, he concludes this portion of, of what we're uh, putting on with this, he says, and uh, he says, and above all, in verse 14, and above all, put on love. We went in depth on love. Love is not like what the world gives you. That's not the kind of love. See, for us, unfortunately, we have just one word for love. You know, I love you, brother. That's a brotherly love. You know, that's that's uh, uh, Philo. I mean, and, and when if you think of the, the word uh, or the city, Philadelphia, Adolphus is the Greek word for brother. Philo is a word for love. It's the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia. Uh, you know, and so we have that kind of love. And I say, I love you, man. You know, and, and then we have that romantic type of love, eros, where, you know, I just, I love you. You know, there's that love that you have between your wife and, and yourself. And, and it's that romantic type of love. And we get the word erotic from that word. And, and then there's the love that God loves us unconditionally. We know that word is what? Agape. What agape love. Unconditional love. And so, for the Greeks, they had, they had four or five different ways of saying love. They only used two or three in the New Testament, uh, Paul does, and, and the writers. But the one that stands out the most is this agape love. And we say that all the time. For God so loved the world 
You know, and if you think about this, in a sense, we kind of walk through this in John three sixteen. For God so brotherly loved the world, you know, that, that well, you know, it doesn't really, you know, I love you, man. And that's how a lot of people want to look at it. God loves everybody. He loves us all. He loves us just the way we are. And I believe in him. Yeah, but you know that the devils believe as well. The demons believe too. So there's got to be a little bit more to it than that. And, and then there's that other word, eros, you know, for God emotionally or romantically loved us. But he sent his only God son. No. God Unconditional. Agape love is self-sacrificing. Agape love is not interested in self. Agape love is a love that is sacrificial. It's a sacrificial love. For God so sacrificially loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. See, the other loves won't fit in them. And we have to look at it as this sacrificial love that God wants us to have for each other. Because the very next portion of the scripture that we go to is dealing with love, especially for you men. And it's interesting that I mean, I'm glad you're here. I, I believe in God's providence and you're here, and I'm glad you're able to be with us this morning to be able to read and to study the next portion of scripture in, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. Let's talk a little more than that. So we say, Father in heaven, once again, we want to thank you for your presence and for your word. Thank you, Father, because we know, we recognize your holiness. And so therefore, Lord, we want to conduct ourselves in a manner that is pleasing to you. We want to hold these truths high. We want to focus on you and, and recognize that you are placed in the highest place. And we know that your son, Jesus Christ, died on the cross for us and has concluded finished the work. And so therefore, all we need to do now, Lord, is to trust in you and to follow what it is that you do. So, Father, thank you once again. Lead us in all things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God has completed and finished the work on the cross. Yet, God, could, God is asking, or actually commanding, that we do certain things. Okay, so God's already completed the finished work on the cross. Is Jesus finished work on the cross? Then why do I have to keep doing something? To, and you're telling me I don't have to do anything. Well, the evidence or the reflection of your love toward anyone, to your spouse, to your children, your love, your agape love, your unconditional love, that self-sacrificing love, will always reflect some sort of obedience or uh, it'll reflect you doing something to show that love. Not to prove that love, but to show that love. I love my wife. And if I were to say that I love my wife, yet I have affairs, I'm never home, I, you know, how, how am I loving my wife? I love my children, yet I mistreat them, I don't take care of them. How does that show that I love my children? See, it's incongruent. Love always has an action behind it. As a matter of fact, love is not a feeling. Love is an action word. Love is something that you do. And when we do love toward God, what we do is we obey what He says. Jesus says, if you love me, you will do what I obey. And so His obedience, His word, is key here at our church. And it should be at most churches, and it is. It should be key because this is what we have to be able to follow what God has for us. And he, does, he, he desires for us to follow Him. And I pray that today we can 
uh, at least look at these verses and, and see where it is that God wants us to continue on. Uh, verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, least lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bond servants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Amen? This portion of scripture, because the church is long, disregarded its full teaching of it, it, it seems kind of hard for a lot of people, especially if you're coming in from the outside world. Now, understand that Paul is talking to the church. He's not talking to the world. And unfortunately, the world has infiltrated the church so much that this just doesn't seem to make sense. I've had people come up to me and say, I'm not submitting to any man. You know, I will never do that. And unfortunately, that's not my call. You know, I can only tell you what the Word says. And if God says that we are to submit, husbands need to love their wives. Well, I can do that. But we're going to look at these two words here just a little bit as to how it plays out in, in what Paul is saying. The, the one thing that we have right now here in Colossians chapter 3, we have just that portion of Scripture. We have two verses. We have two verses for husbands and wives. So, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Those two verses is all that we have in Colossians. So in order to get a full picture of what Paul is saying here, we have to turn our Bibles over to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, uh, in verses 22 and on. And if you're in Colossians now, you just go backwards toward the beginning, maybe a couple of books. Ephesians, Philippians, and then, excuse me, Colossians, Philippians, and then Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5. And the, the interesting thing about this portion of Scripture in Ephesians chapter 5, that verse 22 has its own header. I had a Bible once that not only was verse 22 had its own header, it was also on the next page. And it always starts off with wives and husbands, or wives submit to your husbands. So it's like if that's the only portion of Scripture that we ought to focus on. And it's interesting that verse 21, most people don't even realize this see. But let's start off in verse 21. Verse 21 of Ephesians chapter 5, it says, Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now this is key. This is important. This is what we need to understand first and foremost. Before anything else, falls into place before a wife can submit to her husband, before a husband can submit, in a sense, to her or her, her relationship as, as children submitting to the parents and parents submitting to the needs of the children, before I can submit to my boss, my boss can submit to me or the governing authorities, we, each other, each one of us together, need to learn how to submit to one another. First and foremost, it's unfortunate that many times when people go into this portion of Scripture, they just put that aside. But I want to start off there in Ephesians chapter 
submitting to one another. Submitting to one another. Paul speaks to the people in Ephesus as fellow Christians. It is difficult for us to submit to other people. Amen? It is. I mean, it's, it's difficult, especially when people are being very disrespectful. Especially when they have a different value system than you do. Especially when, when people are, are not uh, on the same page politically or socially. It's difficult submitting, especially in today's age. Today, if you disagree with somebody, you're considered to be a heretic or, you know, you, you ought to be shut down and dis- disqualified. But we are to submit to one another. This is God's economy. This is how God designed it, that we submit to one another. And as Paul is talking, he's talking to the people in, in Ephesus, the people in, in Ephesus, and he's telling them, this is how your life should reflect. If you follow God's design, it would work out. And he says, we need to submit to one another. The next verse uh, there in Philippians chapter 2 in your outline, it says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You see, we have to look at other people's interests. My problem is the love that I have at times is a self-serving love. I love you, brother, because, you know, you can do some great things for me. I love you because you have, or I love you when, you, you know, it's always a conditional love. I love you because, when, or whatever the case may be. And sometimes I'm not even looking at the interest of other people. And many of you have grown in your love, your brotherly love to others to look at and to submit to one another in such ways. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says this, that no one seeks his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And these are verses that are bringing us closer together to, to see how it is that we submit to one another. Remember what Jesus did at, right at the Last Supper? He took the bowl of water. As a matter of fact, let me just explain something here. Because I did say a few things that you might be thinking, okay, that didn't quite add up right. We, we don't follow traditions, the Jewish traditions at all. Uh, we don't even want to try to be Jewish. We're not. We're believers in Jesus Christ. We've been grafted in by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we stand before the throne because of what Christ has done for us. Now, with that said, we every year we celebrate what's called Seder. Seder means the order of things, or the order. And the order of the Passover meal is, is a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ. Now, the Jewish people have done this, and they continue to do it, and they've been doing it for years, for centuries. And they still haven't grasped the picture that this Seder meal has. Now, during the time of the Seder meal, if you'd like to join us, that day we will start at 10 o'clock. And we do it all in the fellowship hall, or depending on where we're at that time, we'll do it outside if we have to. We have canopies and we'll do whatever uh, needs to be done. But we'll, we'll have it, and, and it's a sit-down meal. But before we have the meal, we go through this order of every single piece of the Seder plate, or the plate that, it, that gives you the order, the, the bitter herbs, the horseradish, the, uh, the, the marar, the uh, the hard-boiled egg, the bone shank, everything that is symbolic on that plate. We go over it, and you recognize and you see the picture of Christ. As a matter of fact, the Lord's Supper, Jesus just did arbitrarily pick up a glass of wine and a piece of bread. He says, okay, this is my body, and this is my blood. He did that in the middle of Satan. On the bread of affliction, the afikomen, he pulled it out, he says, this is this bread that has been pierced, and it has been pierced, they pierce it for whatever reason, they can look like a saltine cracker. They hide it. They hide it. 
in, in, in this Trinity bag. They don't even know why they have a Trinity bag, but there's a Trinity bag. They hide it in the middle, and then they pull it out, and, and that's the bread that Jesus Christ pulled out. And he says, this is my body, this bread of affliction that you have been celebrating all these years. This is my body. Beloved, I want you, I want you to know something. If you've not experienced the Passover meal and Seder, it, it is powerful. You will never, ever take another Lord's Supper again the same way. The cup. The cup was the cup of, uh, uh, the, sac- the sacrificial cup. It was the cup, cup of redemption. There's four cups that they, they celebrate with uh, at, the, at the Passover meal. The first one to start, the second one to celebrate, and the third cup. He pulls it out. This is the cup of affliction. Oh, the blood that has been poured out for the Jewish people that is, is to be of the Messiah. He pulls it out and he says, this is my blood. And the new covenant. And, and when, you, when you start to see it all together and you see it how it unfolds, it is just amazing. And, and right after that's done, then we have an actual Passover meal. We'll have lamb, we'll have beef, we'll have chicken. We'll try to make it as kosher as possible. Once again, not because we want to follow tradition, but to show you, it's, it's a teaching example, to show you where our Jewish roots, our, our Christian roots are from. But, but it, it is amazing. And, and the same thing goes with what we're talking about here as we speak about you know, not letting anybody uh, just do what they want, in a sense. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. James 2 he says, if you really fulfill the royal law of, of Scripture, according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor. And, and so as we look at these uh, symbols, these pictures, and, and all these things that are coming together, we recognize that from the very beginning, this was God ordained. He sovereignly just put it all together. And many people still keep missing it. But I want you to know that it's here in Scripture and we can read it together. And from the very beginning, when he put marriage together. The very first institution that he put together was marriage. Not the church. Not the universities. But marriage. And God holds marriage in a high regard. Why do you think our culture is going so much against marriage? Why do you think our marriages have faltered all these years? Why? Because that's the the world knows. Because the enemy knows that if he destroys the marriage, he's destroyed the people. People have an idea of marriage that's not biblical. And so, from the very beginning, God's always, always knew that this is what He wanted to do. So, He wanted to, He was talking to Christians. He wasn't talking to the world. He spoke to them about life. And, and what we talk to you about is church really is for the, for the believer to be fed, to know, and, and for you to learn and, and share with some other people in, in the areas that we have been able to do, the things that you do in life. Today we have with us a visiting member of the Disaster Relief, and I, I, I don't want to let you know who he is, but his initials are Neil uh, Johnson. I mean, I'm sorry. Uh, I didn't want to put him on blast, but it's a way of being able to show love to the community. You know, many of you don't know, but this last week when we started dealing with um, Operation Mountain Strong, uh, it, that we started to help them to get the word out, and get the food out, and get donations in, and, and so to show the love of Christ. You, you know, I, I know a lot of people do things with ulterior motives. They want the fame, the fortune, everything else. And I'm doing it for ulterior motives also, to get the love of Jesus Christ out. That's why we do it. You know, and, and if, 
And if whatever whatever we can do to, to help somebody patch up a roof, which we did this last week, lay out sandbags, which we're going to do later on today, whatever we can do to show the love of Christ because Jesus Christ, and it's not because I want to do it to earn points with God, but I want to do it to show the love of Christ. The Savior that we're going to do, the things that we do in our, in our church, and as your life, you do it to share the love of Christ, to get the opportunity to share the gospel. And we submit to one another in such a way. And only those who have died to sin can know this. Only the people that have died to themselves can understand how to submit to one another, how to actually implement wives submitting to husbands, husbands loving their wives. It's not something that you have to muster. It's not a real power. It's a supernatural power that is bestowed upon you, that is given to you by the power of the Holy Spirit. The very first characteristic of the fruit of the Spirit is love. He gives you that love. That's the very first thing He gives you is to be able to love unconditionally, sacrificially. Not thinking of yourself, but of the other person as we're going to see here. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Somebody said, you said patience in there now. I've been praying for that for a long time. Stop praying for patience. Pray for mercy. Patience, God's going to put you in some very impatient places just so you can work out your patience. How many people can say amen to that? <laughs> it's your fault that we have these uh, long lines at the grocery store. The traffic, that's your fault because God's putting you guys there to learn to you know, teach you how to have patience. Unfortunately, many people who know Christ as Lord and Savior, they still maintain their living. They don't take off the old. They leave the old on. And they try to put on the old over the new over the old. And you can see that in their lifestyle. You can see that in their talk. You can see that in their life. You cannot do both. You know what Jesus said about that? Remember that? He says, you can't be hot or cold. You know, you're either going to be hot or you're going to be cold. That's what he said. He says, you know, if you're warm, he says, I'm going to, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. But, you know, that's, that's just detestable, he says. You can't sit on the fence. And because they're not filled with the Spirit, they don't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They don't recognize that they're offending the Holy God. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You know, very quickly, let me just go to the marital submission. The first one was mutual submission, if I didn't do that to you. But marital submission to one another. Wives, be responsive to your husband's sacrificial love. Let's change the word submit to responsive. Be responsive because that's basically what the word submit means. You know, it's interesting because when we look at this, wives submit to your husbands and you look at 5.22 of Ephesians and if you also go back to Colossians in chapter 3.18 wives submit to your husbands and then a little bit later in um in chapter 6 of Ephesians, it says, Children, obey your parents. And then just a little bit later in verse 5, Bond servants, obey your masters. You see, it doesn't say wives, obey your husbands. So, okay, guys, remember that. She doesn't have to obey you. The wife is to submit. That's a different word. And it's done so intentionally and on purpose. It's done so because the word submit is to be responsive to the leadership that the husband is giving. Let, let's go through this very quickly. Okay? Because in the New 
Testament, first and foremost, when, when this was stated, I, I, I got to put it in context for you. Because just, just coming out the gate like that, it's, I, I already know that people do not like this verse. So, some pastors will they'll just jump right over it. And I was kind of, <laughs> I, I was kind of wondering if I should do that as well myself here, because I knew there were some people here that are going to be here for the first time. But, you know, we've got to be honest and we've got to be according to God's word. And this is where we were at. But for, for just, just so you know, under Jewish law, and I'm reading out of William Barclay, uh, under Jewish law, a woman was a thing, the possession of her husband, just as much as his house or his flock or his material goods. She had no legal rights whatsoever. For instance, under Jewish law, a husband could divorce his wife for any cause, while a wife had no rights at all in the initiation of divorce. The only grounds on which a divorce might be awarded her were if her husband developed leprosy, gave up his beliefs, or sexually assaulted a virgin. So, right off the bat, Paul is dealing with and talking to a community of Jewish men that they took Deuteronomy chapter 24, I mean, and they just applied it liberally. In Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, it says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, you know, yeah, you know I don't like which folks, because he has found some indecency in her, he can write her a certificate of divorce. And this indecency could be, you know what, you forgot to put salt in my food. That's as simple as it was for a man to divorce his wife under Jewish tradition. And they agreed with that. And they allowed it. Now, this is not only talking to the Jewish man, Paul is not only talking, but he's also talking to people that are Christians, the Greeks. In the Greek society, women's situation was even worse. Again, going back to Barclay, in Greek society, a respectable woman lived a life of entire seclusion. She never appeared on the streets alone, not even to go shopping. She lived in the woman's apartments and did not join the men of the household, even for meals. Complete servitude and chastity were demanded of her. But her husband could go out as much as he chose and could enter into any as many relationships outside the marriage as he liked without incurring any social criticism. Under both Jewish and Greek laws and customs, all the privileges belong to the husband and all the duties to the wife. So you're starting to get a picture of what Paul was speaking into. It was this, this servitude. And one of the things that happens when we talk about wives submit to their husbands, this is the picture that a lot of people in the world gets. They want me to do this. And we're going to show you right now, the Bible's going to show you that this is not what, this is what Paul was talking against. No, you are equal. You are helpmate. She is your helpmate. She is not your slave. She's, you're not to speak to her to obey you. She's not to be talked to as a child. She is not to be told as a slave. She is your helpmate. And we're going to see here in just a little bit as we continue going. And, and, and so this, this was the lifestyle of both men and, and, and women. And, and so, but in the Roman society, Things were still worse. Marriage was a little more legalized. Uh, it was more like a legalized prostitution. And divorce being as easy as a formality. And as a matter of fact, for the, for the Greeks and the Romans, divorce was very, I mean, it was really low. I don't need a divorce. I mean, I, I can do whatever I want. Why would I want to divorce her? She's got my kids. She's taking care of my house. You know, I like her over there. But for the Romans, they did whatever they wanted to. And, and the bad thing was that for women, uh, most of the women, that had, they, they didn't want to have children because it deformed their bodies. 
most of the women felt, you know, that I can do anything that a man can do. A lot of, a lot of the feminism started in that area. As a matter of fact, women started joining these wrestling teams and fencing teams, and, and uh, some would, would, uh, would even, uh, well, let me just leave that here. Some, some like to run bare-breasted while hunting wild pigs. Women began to lord it over men, and Houston took the initiative in getting divorces. So, the women at that point in time, for Judaism, the Greeks, and the Romans, was totally different. It was the social construct of that time. This is what Paul is talking to when he says, wives, submit your husbands, be responsive. Don't, don't lord it over them. And, and, and husbands, love your wives. And much of, the, much of what's happened in the past, because the church has given up, or hasn't even really just addressed these issues, and has just wanted to get, you know, everybody just get along and be thankful and, you know, we don't want to cause any waves. But if we were to get down to what was going on at that time, I believe we would have a better picture. Let me go to the next uh, the next section when he says, wives submit to your own husbands. The desire uh, that, Paul is ta- that Paul is talking about here, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Submission to one another. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. I want you to notice something, especially here in Ephesians. A little while ago in Colossians chapter 3, I noted that there's two verses for husbands and wives, two verses for the children and parents, two verses for uh, slaves and, 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 home and owners. Here, Paul really just digs into the men. He tells the wives, wives to mature husbands. As to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the household, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and in himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to everything in their husbands, to their husbands. Three verses. Now, the next six verses apply to men. You are more responsible. You are held to a higher responsibility, a higher accountability, because you are the head of the church. Excuse me. And wives, if you just let them do what they're supposed to do and let them remind them from time to time, as my wife does, they're the ones going to be held accountable. God's going to hold you accountable, so whatever you want to do, I'm just going to step back. If you understand the severity, the responsibility, the, the just what you have as a husband, you would start doing things a little bit different. You see, you are to love your wife as Christ loved the church. What did Christ do for the church? He died for the church. It, it, it's a husbands are to be responsible. Letter A, it must be a sacrificial love. A sacrificial love. You do this not emotionally, not uh, you know brotherly. You don't love her as you would your brother, your sister, or whatever else. You don't love her. I mean, you should. You should have this friendship uh, with one another, this kinship that you like to enjoy with one another. You don't love her just erotically. That's awesome. I mean, you should have a, a good relationship with your wife in that manner. But the love that Paul is talking about here, the love that God is talking about is this unconditional love. And this unconditional love, you love her sacrificially. 
You give yourself for her as Christ loved the church and gave himself. When Christ came to earth in human form, he knew that he was going to be mocked, he was going to be ridiculed, he was going to be maligned. He knew that he was going to be rejected, he was going to be beaten. He knew that he was going to be crucified. Yet, he loved you anyways. He loved you anyways. He knew the torture and all that was going to take place, yet he gave himself sacrificially for you and for me. He gave himself, knowing all this. As a matter of fact, in Romans 5, verse 7, it says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. The Bible says that we were in enmity with God. A little while ago in Colossians, we read that we were enemies of God, that we are haters of God. The world is not seeking God. People don't want God. What they want are the benefits of God. What people want is is the forgiveness of sin. Or what they want is to be all the stuff taken away, the guilt that they have because of things that they've done. Or the shame that has happened to a person. People want that taken away. They want to find meaning in life. Many people, especially those with, with means of all sorts of monies and things that they have, they still find an empty life. Because the only one that can give you meaning, can fill that void, is Christ. And, and people want that. They want their life to matter, yet they don't want to submit to God. They don't want that. And we are such an, an enmity with God. We are such enemies of God. We, we were dead in our trespasses and our sins. Yet God, in His sovereign choice, broke you up. For those that have committed the life of Christ, they have, He has broken you up. He, 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 he's the original author of the book. And He woke you up. And He made you to see that you needed Him, that you were a sinner. And without Him, you were under His wrath. And Jesus Christ came to save you. And you asked, save me from what? Save me from going to hell? No, He saved you. Yes, from going to hell. But He saved you from the wrath of God. God saved you from Himself. Because His wrath is coming upon those that are disobedient, the ones that do with God, that hate God, that, that, that don't desire God. Romans 3 tells us there's no one righteous. No, not one. There is no one who seeks after God. But, but, but I've been seeking. I, I believe most people are seeking the benefits of God. But when you talk to them about, well, you know, wives need to submit to their husbands. That, that part in the Bible I don't want to listen to. Husbands, you need to sacrificially love your wives. Her? Come on. Really? And you start thinking, this is what we're supposed to do. Ephesians 5.2, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and a sacrifice. Number, letter B, not only this love, it must be a purifying love, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and, and without blemish. What Paul is saying here is that, no. As a husband, as a, as a husband, you must love her with this purifying love. Jesus Christ died for me while I was still a sinner. He forgave my sin. 
And so, in a sense, a husband, he has to love his wife and forgive her. Think of the most unimaginable thing that can happen in, to the man and the woman. Just think of whatever you can think of. And whatever that is, the husband is to love her with a purifying love. And now you start to see a little bit more about this submission of the wife. You know, if, if we're just talking about these two things, and we're going to get a little deeper in this, but if we're just talking about these, these two things, which woman would not want to submit to a man like that? This is the biblical model. I'm not making this up. Husbands ought to love their wives as Christ loved the church and give himself and also purify them and pray for them and pray over them and give them encouragement and not bring them down, tear them down, talk bad to them. You ought to bring them up. And this is how it is that we, we raise our family and we have this perfect submission in the new man. And a believer is foreign to, a non-believer is foreign to anything that, that God has for us. But love only wants the best. Let her see. There must be a caring love. There must be a caring love. In the same way husbands should love his, their wives as their own bodies. Paul says, you know, how many of you care for your body? He who loves his wife loves himself because the two become one. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it, cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. The way Christ loves his church and nourishes it is the same way that I am to love my wife. This is a profound mystery, beloved. You see, marriage is a picture of the church, and the church is a picture of marriage. And what Paul is teaching here is more than just husband and wife. He's teaching that the church, the way Jesus Christ loves the church, and the church responds to Christ, is the way that a husband and a wife ought to be. I mean, well, I hope you wouldn't. As a church, we wouldn't tell Jesus Christ, you know what, I don't want to do that. I, you know, I don't like that commandment. You might not like it, but that's just the way it is. <laughs> we're going to do it. And we're going to do it together. And we, we talk about marriage as being just, you know, this is mine, that's yours, 50-50, we'll, we'll go that way. No, it's 100% committed to Christ. Two imperfect people coming to Christ together, knowing that we are to operate in His economy. See, we're not operating by the Word, not the world. This culture has so much, but Christ has even more. And the culture people are following and they're looking at on ways to better their marriages, but Christ already has the answer. If our church is a picture of our marriage, let it be. It, it, it's a love that is unbreakable. An unbreakable love. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. You know, one of the biggest problems in a lot of the marriages that I've talked to is one or the other does not want to leave mom or dad. Maybe mom. You know, one man told me years ago, he says, you know, I, I, it's hard. I got to choose between my wife and my, my mom. You know, I, I don't know what to do. Well, I told him, you know, a, a boy has a difficult leaving his mom, but a man stands next to his wife. He goes, yeah, I know. I'm not going. Let me say that again. A boy has a difficulty detaching himself from his mom, but a man stands next to his wife. So you need to grow up. 
And, and for some, that that is this, one of the hardest things to do, to leave mother or father. And, and what happens is is when mom or dad are gone, people believe, you know, it's, it's, the family's all broken up now. You know, mom died, dad died, and they're all gone, and so now we don't get together as family. That's not necessarily true. You might not. But it was mom that held everybody together, or dad. It was them that, you know, that's the reason you all came together. And, but now that they're gone, they left you a legacy to do the same thing in your family. And you brought your children in, you brought the grandchildren in, and they're all there together. And they're coming in one day, you will be gone too. And what will happen is they will splinter off and start their own families. And we start them young to honor the family. Oh, but, but yet, mother and father are the key to everything. Jesus Christ, the church, teaching the family, teaching the children. And it's the church that is housing the family. And, and it is the, the husband and the wife and those that you, have, as we submit to one another, we submit to, to husband and wife and to children, and we'll talk about that next week, and, and, and how we bring this all together. And, and it's, you know, beloved, if we just were to follow the word of God. But no, the culture tells us, no, no, you they're male chauvinists. Paul was a chauvinist. No, he wasn't. Matter of fact, every time the Bible talks about women in the Bible, God always elevates them. Always. Always elevated. You, you know, Eve, Sarah, Ruth, Naomi, you know, I mean, every, every one of them, every time, it elevates them. Eve, Bathsheba. Bathsheba was the one that had an affair with King David. And she is elevated by being put in the lineage of Jesus Christ. Rahab, a prostitute, she is elevated by being put in the lineage of Jesus Christ. Every time a woman is mentioned in the Bible, the Bible elevates them, lifts them up. And, and, and this lie that the world is telling you that the Bible is a male chauvinistic type of material that wants to just destroy womanhood and, you know, I am woman, I am, hear me roar, or whatever the case that she used to say. Anyways, it, it's, it, it's all that to distort the word. It's unfortunate for a lot of people that some of them heard this message way late in life. And they'd like to say, yeah, I'd like to be able to do that all over again. Unfortunately for some, you won't be able to. But what you can do is pass it on to the next generation. Right? You pass it on to the next generation. You just start talking to people. Tell them, look, this is what the Word of God says. And I believe every and if you were to do this, if I'd have done this, if you were to do this, I believe your marriage would flourish. I believe your marriage would flourish. Paul says at the end of verse uh, 32 and 33, this mystery is profound. I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The very first thing that people need to understand is that we are sinners. That's why we follow the world. That's why we follow this culture. And every time that I sin, I offend a holy God. And my sin is deserving of eternal punishment. There is no way that I can make it into heaven on my own accord just because I'm a pastor or just because I help people or just because of the things I say and do. Nothing can get me into the gates of heaven apart from Christ. I've sinned. Some people say, well, I'm not really that bad. You know, you, you, you must have been pretty bad, but I'm not. 
Did you ever lie? Well, yeah, maybe once. Okay, the Bible calls you a liar. Have you ever stole anything? Yeah, maybe when I was in grade school. Okay, the Bible calls you a thief. Have you ever used the Lord's name in vain? Uh, what, what do you mean, today? Uh, ever? Yeah. The Bible calls you a blasphemer. Have you ever had an impure thought? Well, yeah. Well, the Bible calls you an adulterer. There you go, right there. Just in those, you're lying, thieving, blaspheming, adulterer. Just in what those four things that I just mentioned, you think God's going to get you into heaven? No, doesn't he? No. I'm sorry to say, what's the vote? But I'm a good person. Well, you just, you just confessed to me that you're not. You need a Savior. And the Savior is Jesus Christ. He finished the work. You don't have to continue to go to church, but you come to church because you want to. The biggest indicator of your redeemed life is that you want to know God more. You, you want to, you desire God more. You, you, you want to just be around God's people. You know, that, those are the indicators that, that there's, there's been a regeneration in your life. And, and the fact that you are sorrowful for the sin, God, please forgive me as a repentant sinner in the, par- in the parable that Jesus Christ had said about the, the tax collector and the, and the, uh, and the Pharisee. The Pharisees, Jewish men, would always pray, Lord, I thank you that I'm, that I'm not a, a slave, that I'm not a Gentile, and that I'm not a woman. Thank you, Lord, for making me this good. And as he's praying, Jesus says, and, and the tax collector is on his knees, on his face, and he's saying, Lord, have mercy on me. And Jesus asked the rhetorical question, who do you think was righteous? Well, the guy that was on his face. You need to fall on your face and, and just confess that you offended a holy God. And that offense is worthy of eternal punishment. And the only way that that eternal punishment is going to be wiped away because God is looking for retribution. He's, his wrath is coming. We read that in, in the Colossians. His wrath is on its way. And the only way that that can be absolved is by the finished work of Christ. The Bible calls it propitiation. But God propitiates. He's, he's propitiating. He, he's, he's appeasing. Jesus Christ has appeased God through his sacrificial in a few weeks, when we go through the Savior, I, I pray that you can join us. You know, just make a, make, you know, make a phone call and let us know you're coming so we can reserve a spot for you. But in that Savior, in that Passover meal, that beautiful picture of what Jesus Christ did for us at once. I want to encourage you to do so. You know, and, and if this model of marriage has touched you in any way, positive or negative, please, Deal with it in a sense where you look at what God's word says. Either you trust God or you don't. Are you, either you believe that His word is true and infallible and never changes, or you don't. But this word is for those that have been redeemed. If you've been redeemed, then this is for you. And if not, then you're thinking, okay, what do I need to do? Well, you can't. That's not even a suggestion. There's no, there's no prayer for it, really. There's no nothing that you can raise your hand and come forward and sign a little card or something. No. But the Bible says just repent. That's it. What must we do? Repent. And that's a command. To repent. Repent. And fall on your face and say, Lord, forgive me. I am a sinner. Have mercy on me. 
Twitter y yo, Carlos Inés.